like for you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Kind of scared myself this week. I normally, I told several people this through the week, I, I normally am still, when it comes to Friday, even Saturday sometimes, I'm still working on a sermon. Uh, Pam took her last business trip this week and left on Monday. And I actually put my nose into the notes and into my uh, laptop, and I began to work on this message. And uh, I was through about 1 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon. So I was kind of, I got done, I thought, uh, this might not be, this not be what I'm supposed to preach on. But uh, I went back over it and read over it, and I feel pretty confident. I have, I, I have so thoroughly enjoyed studying 2 Corinthians again, especially chapter 4 and 5. I mean, I love all of it, but chapter 4 and chapter 5 are just so enlightening. They, they point out so richly and so deeply uh, the work of reconciliation that God has done through the person and work of his dear son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I cannot wait. I'm, I'm, I've preached on it before, but I'm going to write completely new. It's not going to be something new, but it's going to be, I'm, I'm going to continue right on along, and we're going into verse uh, 17. I think all I'm going to cover next week is verse 17. Uh, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. If any man be in Christ He's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. I think that's all I'll cover next week. And then two weeks from now, Lord willing, we'll finish this thing out with verses 18 through verse 21 and uh, preach another message to you on do you really want to know the gospel? Because it's there. It's just, it's here. This, this is our hope. Yeah, this, this is what our joy is. This is what, this is what Paul meant when he said, for I determined not to know, you, know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I hope and I pray that in however many more years and however many years I have preached before this, that He will never let me forget. That's, that's the goal. That's the design. And that's the purpose of the gospel ministry, to preach Christ and Him crucified. Right? And this message is entitled Christ Constraining Love. Christ Constraining Love. This will be part two. We're going to cover verses 14 through verse 16. And I thought long and hard about what I was going to write to you in introduction, and in it, uh, it, to me it became pretty clear. And here's the thing, because I've got history to draw on just like you do. You know, I didn't come into this thing uh, without baggage behind me just like everybody, I have a religious history. Uh, I know Sally and Russ and them, they all know because they were with a buddy knows from when the beginning. They, they know what I was when I came here, you know, back in the early 80s, middle 80s. But that being the case, I know that, that most, as I look around, and I, you know, there's, there's churches on every corner, is there not? Those of you that drive in from out of town, you drive by a plethora of churches to get here. Do you not? Different, various denominations, and some of them's Baptist, some of them's Pentecost, some of them's Catholic, some of them's Methodist, Presbyterian, various denominations or uh, groups within groups, you know. But one thing I've come to know and understand is most of what promotes itself under the name of evangelical Christianity is nothing more or less than legal, mercenary, conditional work salvation 
And the reason it's that way is because they're ignorant of, all of them without exception, they're ignorant of and not submitted to Christ's righteousness alone as the only ground, hope, and cause of salvation. You couldn't make it any clearer than what the Apostle Paul wrote. He said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, his natural-born brethren. And that, that's what these people are. You've got brothers and sisters. I've got a brother. You have aunts and uncles. You have grandmothers and grandfathers, many of you. They, they're, 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 they're good people. You hear me? They're good people. I, and I use that. I told a lady this week, I don't even like that word, but I, I'll use it in this sense because you know what I mean by good people. They're the kind of people that give you the shirt off their back. They'd do anything for a neighbor. They, they go to church regularly. They pray. They study the Scriptures. They give regularly to a church. But listen to me. Why? This is the thing. Why do they do all of it? Why are they going through the motion? Why did you, before the Lord revealed a righteousness you had no part in producing or maintaining, a righteousness produced for you by the obedience unto death of the Lord Jesus Christ in your name and your nature, why did you do everything that you did? Huh? I did it because I was afraid if I didn't do it, what would happen? God would kill my wife or he'd kill my kids or he'd kill me, worst of all. You know, I mean, long and short of it is we always think about who first. He says, my heart's desire for my brothers, my flesh, is that they, here's, that they might be saved. And everybody thought they were saved, but what were they? They were lost. How do we know they lost? Because he says this, for I bear them record that they have a zeal for God. I, people ask me, well, how do you know, how do you determine who's lost? Right here. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Here's how you know whether your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your aunts, your uncles, your mom, your dad, your grandma, your grandpa, your friends or your foes are lost. Here it is. They being ignorant of God's righteousness. Now, there are varying degrees in there. There's some of them are pagans, but there's some of them standing in pulpits. Some of them are deacons. Some of them are Sunday school teachers, WMU leaders. Huh? Good mamas, good daddies, good grandmas, good grandpas. But they're ignorant of the righteousness of God. And being ignorant of the righteousness of God, what do they do? They're going about to establish, here's, here's, here's the key, their own righteousness. Why? They have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. So that being the case, everything they do, I told everybody in the Sunday Bible class, or I jumped the gun because it was in my head, they, they do it out of a carrot and stick mentality. And I'm, I'm pretty sure you know what I mean by a carrot and stick mentality, but if you don't know what, day, what I mean by that, let me tell you what I mean. I, this is what I mean. Everything they do religiously is done out of either legal fear, scared something bad's going to happen, or it's done from the other side of this perspective, out of mercenary reward you ever remember this one will there be any stars in my crown everybody's looking for a reward God's children have their reward huh matter of fact we got the reward of Abraham he says I am thy shield and thy buckler and what else am I I am thy exceeding great 
reward. Why would I want a star in my crown if I got the exceeding great reward? But they don't see it that way. Not at all. And see, the problem with that sort of religious effort is that it's contrary to what the Scriptures teach us and declare concerning what true acceptable obedience is. Christ made it clear in His discourse with those Jews who they were angry at Him. And what were they angry at Him for? Because He had commanded a lame man to do what? To take up his bed on the Sabbath day and do what? Walk. They weren't upset because He was healed. They were upset because Christ told him to do work on their Sabbath day. And so how'd Christ respond to it? But I have greater witness than that of John for the works which your Father has given me to finish the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself which has sent me hath borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice. What a charge. You've never heard his voice at any time. You've neither seen his shape. You have not his word abiding in you. How do we know they don't have his word abiding in them? For whom he sent, you don't believe him. Search the scriptures. You do search the scriptures. For in them what? You think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me that you might have life. But I know you. Think about it. You ever think about that? God knows us. And he knew them. He said, I know you, that you have not the love of God in you. We talked about that the last time we, we, we went over these verses. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another come in his own name, him he will receive. How can you believe which receive honor one from another? In other words, they, they, they applaud each other and tell each other, I've had people, Pastor, tell me I'm saved. I can't tell you that. I, yeah, I can't do that. The only one that can give you assurance is who? The one who is assurance. He says, do not think that I'll accuse you to the Father. There's one that accuses you, what? Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you'd believe me. Because what did Moses do? Moses wrote to me, but if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my word? That's the situation our families are in. Now they are. I always think of that statement Bill Parker made standing in this pulpit years ago. Years ago, probably back when we first, it might have even been back out at the old place together. He made this statement, I've always, I used to always get it wrong, so I wrote it down. The justified saint has for his or her starting place what the self-righteous religionist has for his or her goal. We start out how? The just, the righteous, live by faith. They start out what? Carrot and a stick. What are they trying to do? Trying to get a righteousness. Why? They don't trust this one. It's hard to trust something you can't handle it to us. Right? But we believe that which is like Moses did. He believed what was invisible. And we believe that too. And I think that's the truth that, that the Apostle Paul is setting forth in these verses that we want to look at this morning. For the love of Christ constrains us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And he, that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him that died for them and rose again. You see what you're talking about here? Representation. Substitution. 
more than anything else, reconciliation. That's what the goal, that's what the theme of this is. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. I did not understand what this really meant until I was studying it this, this way. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we've known Christ after the flesh, yet henceforth what? We don't know him anymore after the flesh. I think I've got some interesting insight on that. Not something new, but something been around for a long time about what that, those verses actually mean to us. But think about this opening statement. For the love of Christ constrains us. Let me read it to you in a literal translation. For the love of Christ doth constrain us. Doesn't try. What does it do? It constrains us. When I was in false religion, I ignorantly read those words, for the love of Christ constrained us. And being in ignorance and unbelief, you know what I thought it meant? I thought he was speaking of our, the love of Christ. In other words, my love for Christ, that's what constrains me. Isn't that what we thought? And the reason I know that was the way I thought, we used to sing a song all the time. You know what it was? Oh, how I love Jesus. We had to repeat it multiple times, right? We want to make sure everybody understood how much we loved him. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Three times. I guess maybe whoever wrote it was thinking Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Because he first loved me. And old Richard would be on the front row singing louder and prouder. Or if I was in the crowd between them two guys that had that awful breath on both sides, I mean, singing louder and prouder than anybody else. Now, don't think that your pastor doesn't believe that God's redeemed do love him. Because we do. You hear me? We do love him. I, how do I know we love him? John said this, we love him. 1 John 4 verse 19, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. But here's the thing. Our love for God is not what constrains us. You hear me? Because if it was what constrains us, what would we never do? Huh? I mean, you think about it. The Greek word for constraineth, translated constraineth, it means to hold together or to hold completely or to hold, listen to this, or to hold fast like a prisoner. <laughs> to hold fast like a prisoner. See, it's not our love to him, but what is it? It's Christ's love for us that holds us to him. And listen, it's Christ's love for his children, his church, that does what? It holds us together as a church family, and it holds us where? To himself as his willing prisoners, his willing bond slaves. We're not, it's not a whip and a chain. That's not. And I'll tell you this much, whatever this love of Christ is of what Paul writes here, that's what holds us completely. The love of Christ does constrain us. So that begs this question, what is this love of Christ that holds us? What is it? Well, if you recall, I've told you throughout this entire study, what's the theme of these, these two chapters, chapter 4, chapter 5 in particular? It's reconciliation. That's all it's about. It's not about the new birth. It's about reconciliation. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. He makes it so clear. And that 
idea of reconciliation, what is it? It's two-way. God reconciled us to him, but you know what? He reconciled himself to us. Huh? Now, he did. It's, it, this, this wasn't a God is my co-pilot kind of thing. You weren't participating in this reconciliation. You don't participate in your justification. This is something solely, wholly done outside of you, totally and completely. And see, the only way God can and did reconcile sinners to himself is how? Through the death of the God-sent Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you this much. Paul preached this gospel message of reconciliation. He didn't just preach it in Corinth. You know what he did? He preached this message of reconciliation through the blood and accomplished death, the very obedience unto death of Christ, the God-sent Messiah, every single solitary place God gave him an opportunity to preach it. How do I know? Here it is. This is Romans, book of Romans. For I, if, if when we were enemies, how, we were enemies, this is language, we were reconciled to God. When? When we were enemies. How? By the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Then he goes over to Coloss, another place, another region. And he writes this, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, that's us, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you, listen, holy and unclaimable and unreprovable in his sight. How? By the death of Christ, by his blood. It's the exact same thing John wrote. Here ends love. What's the love of Christ? Here ends love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son the propitiation. The satisfaction, the reconciliation for our sin. You think about what that means in light of what John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. Same chapter, 1 John 4, 19. He says, we love him because he first loved us. Do you see his love this morning? Here ends love. Not that you loved me, but that I loved you. And what did I do? I sent Christ to satisfy myself. I think about that verse all the time. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy iniquities for my name's sake and will remember your transgressions no more. He was satisfying himself. We'll see that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. The implications of this truth are absolutely staggering. It destroys this, this truth. Here in love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. This truth, we love Him because He first loved us, destroys everything about free will. You say, how? Well, the effect of God's love of whoever John declares as us is what? Because he first loved us, what every one of those that he loved, what, what do they do? We love him. See it? Not it's we try to love him, or we hope to love him, 
Or we might use our free will and love him. We love him. You know what I mean? We love him because he first loved us. It's, it's not that there's a possibility that they might love him. They'll love him. It's, it, it's not, uh, yeah, you think about the, the, the one true God who cannot lie. He moved his servant, John, by his Holy Spirit to tell us we love him because he first loved us. And he moved the apostle Paul to write this. We thus judge that if one died for all, what happened? They're all dead. <laughs> Now, the, the context of this verse, this statement, qualifies the scope of that little word that so many people have trouble with, all. So they think, well, you know, he died for all. And by but the religious world, who did they think he died for? He died for everybody. Even people that are in hell right now, I don't know how they get away. They're saying, oh, no, 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 but, but you've got to believe. If you believe, died, you mean all means all, what does it mean? Christ did not. You hear me? He did not die. He did not shed his blood for one single solitary sinner that is in hell. And he certainly did not shed his blood indiscriminately for all men and women without exception that's ever been born. According to the scriptures, according to our Lord Jesus Christ's own word, he said, I lay down my life for the sheep. Not the goats. The sheep. So the love of Christ which holds the heart and soul of the child of God captive is that he died in our place as our substitute, our surety, our representative, and our Savior. And since we're in him, when he died, we died. Died in what respect? I'm still alive, still breathing right now. Paul was still breathing when he wrote this, but he said, we did. We died. How can that be? We're dead to what? We're dead to the guilt, penalty, and condemnation of God's law and justice. For he that is dead is freed from sin. What? Because con what's the consequences of sin? The wages of sin? Death. One or one million. You can't escape it. You can't pretend that you're not a sinner. Somehow your sin has to be dealt with. When he died, bearing my guilt and my penalty and my condemnation, and when he cried, it's finished, what was it? It was done. The law had no more claim on it. Now, if we be dead with Christ, and we are, we believe that what? We'll also live with him when? In the resurrection. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead died no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin. How many times? And in that he liveth, what does he do? He lives there. We have one mediator between God and man. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father who? Jesus Christ, the righteousness. He said, for the wages of sin is death, gift of God, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Romans chapter 6, verse uh, 23. But he goes on. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man how long? As long as he lives. Hmm. Really? 
For the woman, he used it illustrated for the woman which hath an husband bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband's dead, she's loose from the law of her husband. So then, if while the husband liveth, she be married to another man, what should she be called? An adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. And I've seen men try to take this, this first, you know what, what they make the big issue? Divorce and remarriage. They have missed what Paul is using. A, it's basic, this is basically a parable is what it is. He's using this to teach a spiritual lesson. What's the lesson? Here's the lesson. Wherefore, my brethren... In other words, based on what I've just showed you concerning this law of marriage. Wherefore, my brethren, you are become dead. What? Dead to the law. How? By the body of Christ that you should be married to another. I'm going to tell you what. People that are trying to be married to Christ and married to the law, you know what they are? They're what he said. If If you're trying to go back to your first, you're married to another husband while you're married to your first husband, you've divorced and left them, what are you? You're an adulteress. So if you think it's Christ plus the law, what are you? See, the entirety of Christ's work, his very obedience unto death, none of it was for his sake. Didn't change him. But for the sake of those whom he represented is their surety and substitute. Do you see that this morning? Do you see everything Christ did? He didn't do it for himself. Who did he do it for? He did it for those given to him by the Father in the everlasting covenant of grace. And see, it's this love of Christ, him, him taking all the responsibility as our surety, and his accomplished death and his resurrection, that's what constrains us. It holds our hearts captive. And I'll tell you this much, that same love of Christ that holds the heart, constrains the heart of the children of God, it has absolutely no effect on the reprobate. None. Matter of fact, I'll go this far. The love of Christ to the reprobate, you know what it is? It's a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling. And they stumble over it. They miss it. Notice what he says next in verse 15. Notice the results. What's, what's the result of a knowledge? People say, you can't tell people they're free. They'll live like they want to. Well, notice what the, the, this revelation, this knowledge, this understanding of full, free, eternal salvation brings with it. He that died, died for all, that they which live should do what? Live like hell. Live like they won't live. No, that they should live unto him, not unto themselves, but unto him that died for them and rose again. Remember what John wrote? We love him. Why do we love him? He reconciled. Huh? There's something to be said for the gift of faith, isn't it? That God gives to his children. That he bestows on his elect in regeneration conversion by which they look to Christ and by God-given faith see him as their sin bearer. I've said this as long as I've been your pastor. Nobody, nobody fears the Lord and nobody loves the Lord like those who have been brought to see the forgiveness of sin. David wrote this, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? You ever deal with that on a daily basis? Oh, I know you don't sin. 
None of us do anymore, do we? We don't ever fall. When you fall, what, what do you feel? Huh? Don't, aren't you thankful for thee, well, Lord, if you mark my iniquities, what's, what's happening? He, he were to enter into judgment with me based on what I have said in this time. He would be forced to condemn me. I mean, I, I believe that with all my heart. But then he goes on. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Think of that forgiveness. Knowing my sins are forgiven, it makes me, ooh, I'm scared to death. I'm going to go hide, hope he never sees me again. No. Before the sacrifice was offered, that's what our first father did. When God clothed him, things changed. Huh? See, this fear of the Lord, it's not something that we work up. Because thank God the same Holy Spirit that moved Paul to write, that David to write those words, he moved the Jeremiah, or he moved Paul to write what? There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who? The unregenerate. Who? All men and women by nature, including God's elect, before regeneration and conversion. But then the same Spirit moved Jeremiah to write this. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. But listen to this. I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. So how's that fear get in there? <laughs> you work it up, right? No, he puts it in us. And when I, tell, when I think about this, the, the fear of the Lord that God puts in the hearts of his people, it's a result of him revealing to them. What have you seen? The price required to put away your sin. It's kind of like what Zechariah wrote concerning this fear of the Lord. He said, it shall come to pass in that day. I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour upon the house of David, upon the house of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication. And here's what happens to everyone of God redeemed. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And what do they do? As one that is in bitterness for his or her firstborn. The price of forgiveness, it's not the sinner's law keeping. It's not the sinner's repentance. It's not their perseverance. And it's not even their faith. Price of forgiveness, the price of reconciliation is what? It's the blood of Christ in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. What did it require? Christ's blood. If it's possible, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He says it again, in whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sin. That's Colossians 1, 14. The first one was Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. And according to Paul's word in our text, those who by God-given faith see the great price are those described by these words, that they which live, and we do live, we're alive, alive unto God, should henceforth live, not live unto themselves, but unto him that died for them and rose for them. What does that mean? You don't, with it concerns God's children, you don't have to beg them. You don't have to threaten them. And you don't have to promise them anything. You don't. 
Because they're being taught of God. You know what? They know and they live by this truth. Because why? They know this. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are what? He is. And I'm going to correct something. Ken caught me on it. Ken, Ken caught me on it a couple weeks ago. Pointed out to me. I told you that story about that woman. And I said she went to Philip's house. It wasn't Philip. It's Simon, wasn't it? <laughs> I think I, got, I made sure when I wrote it down, I went back and looked at it. It was Simon. But when I think about this thing of, of loving God and living appropriately, it's like that woman that came into Simon's house and what was she? She was a great sinner, right? And being forgiven much, what did she do? She loved much. And I'll tell you this much. If you ever see your sins forgiven through the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll love him. Now, you will. We love him because he first loved us. But look at verse 16, and we'll wrap this thing up. Wherefore, henceforth, no we, no man after the flesh. I, I started to write something down, but I thought, you know what? I, I loved what Mr. Gill wrote on this because I think it makes it about as clear as you can make it without me adding any commentary. He said, since the death and resurrection of Christ which has broken down the middle wall of partition, which he's already talked about over in chapter 2, and has tucked away all distinctions of men. He says, Paul says, we don't esteem, we don't value no man on account of his carnal descent, or fleshly privileges, or being of a Jewish nation, or being of the descent of Abraham, or circumcised as he was, or on account of their outward state and conditions as being rich and honorable among men, or on account of their natural parts and requirements, their learning, their wisdom, their eloquence. Nor do we own any man to be a Christian that lives after the flesh to himself and not to Christ, nor do we make account of the saints themselves in this mortal state. But as they will be in the resurrection... They'll be in the resurrection in consequence of Christ having died for them and rose again. He says, we see one another how? Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's kind of like this. Every true elect sinner is one with Christ who's been brought to true faith and true repentance. It can be said of all God's redeemed, what? As he is, so are we in this world. All of them, equally saved, equally justified, equally sanctified, and equally titled to all grace here and all glory hereafter. But care, pay careful attention to these next words because I believe, and I, I'm convinced of this, the more I've looked at this over the last several weeks, I believe they set up what Paul's about to declare in the last four verses of this chapter. He says, Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Now think about this. I, I, I got a lot of this from Harker and got a lot of it from, from uh, Mr. Calvin and from John Gill as well. They all seem to be kind of the same agreement on this, but I think it makes a lot of sense. In reality, the Apostle Paul, when you think about it, he didn't know Christ after the flesh. When he saw Christ on that road to Damascus, it was Christ in a glorified body, right? It wasn't that same body that he had that James, you know, John, James and John and all the apostles, they handled that body. They saw that body. They saw him as he walked on the earth as he was telling them what he had been sent here to do. But after he had finished the work and was risen, what was he? 
He's now the glorified Christ, the redeemed, the, the redeemer of his people. And so in reality, since he hadn't seen Paul Christ personally or physically and handle him, he did see him and talk with him after his resurrection. I believe these words, though we have known Christ after the flesh, they've got to be something more, mean something more than just knowing somebody personally. Knowing somebody like men know each other. You know, I know you, you know me, I know my friends, you know your friends. The sense of the words to me seem to indicate the accomplishment of what Christ did for his people while he was how? How did he reconcile us? In the body of his flesh. We're going to take this bread. What does it point to? His broken body. His earthly human nature and body. Robert Hawker stated it this way. The one sacrifice. Listen, if you don't get anything else, you get this one statement. It's one of the best statements I've read in a while. The one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross is altogether so great and so glorious and hath such an infinite value and efficacy in it that it cannot be offered any more. But to know Christ after the flesh, after an earthly body, that is to come again in the likeness of sinful flesh, he only came in the likeness of sinful flesh one time, would carry with it the idea that that one offering of Christ needed to be repeated which is a thing in direct opposition to the gospel. I think that these words that he wrote here are kind of similar or parallel to what the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 10. We read it today when we take the Lord's table. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once. And every priest standeth daily and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. If he has to come back in the flesh, what's he got to do? More sacrifices to be offered. Same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, what did he do? Sat down. Not coming back. Come back one more time, but what's he coming back? To be glorified in his saints. For by one offering, the offering of that body and that shed blood, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. I think what... Paul was telling them, and what I'm trying to tell you this morning is this. The fact that Christ Jesus, our Lord, God-man, is no longer in the flesh, which they had previously known and handled, you know what it is? It's proof positive to you and me that the work of reconciliation is accomplished. Let me close with this. Mr. Hawker said this, Reader, do not fail to observe with what earnestness in affection, the apostle regarded the infinitely precious efficacy of Christ's blood. So great to need nothing beside. So effectual that by it, Jesus hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. As children of God, I beg you this morning, please know our glorified Savior and Redeemer. Where is he at? He's seated. Why? It's finished. It's finished. And we'll talk about how he finished it over the next couple of messages, okay? Let me stop this recording.